0: topics discussed are for educational purposes only. Now welcome, Integrative Dietitians Allie Miller and her co-host Becky Yu.
1: Welcome to episode 143 of the Naturally Nourished podcast. Today we'll be talking all about blood pressure from the highs to the lows and everything in between. Um, this is a very common topic that we discuss quite often, especially in our virtual food as medicine ketosis class as blood pressure fluctuations are really common when first getting into keto with the electrolyte changes that can occur. Um, and also in keto, we've seen a lot of positive influence and feedback of reduction of blood pressure medications especially amongst this population
2: yes it may come as a surprise to you guys but sodium is not the thing that you need to restrict in the diet it's going to be something that may be of a surprise and thought of in a different disease state I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna just hang that cherry and not say anything <laughs> but when you go keto you reduce this amount of This thing and these levels go down and often that's its own mechanism. And then the weight loss that you get from the metabolism of fat as fuel also, of course, brings down blood pressure and allows people to get off of not only diuretics and uh, ACE inhibitors and all classes of blood pressure medications, but we also see reductions in diabetic drugs, uh, hyperlipidemia or cholesterol drugs, and so much more. And that's where we really use this concept of food as medicine with the 12-week real food keto approach because it's just as much about the restriction of carbs and the abundance of healthy whole food fats in a variety of forms, but we also challenge you in every class to have food as medicine goals for a particular disease state, for a particular symptom or area of focus in the body. So it may be a class where we're talking about Uh, you know, non-caloric sweeteners and how they disrupt the microbiome. And then we'll also be presenting you with a candida quiz and we'll also be presenting you with guidance on how to do a probiotic challenge and educating you on the difference of berberine versus caprylic acid and how you could use natural compounds to plow your gut if you are in a state of overgrowth and then we set a goal to get a probiotic rich food five times a week and uh, another goal as far as upping your prebiotic fibers so Everything's very synergistic and layered. And when you complete the three-month program, you will know both high-level information on how foods can heal your body, but you'll also be at a different state of your own personal health that you'll have more connectivity with the feedback of what you put in your body and how your body responds, which means sustainable long-term results and ultimately just feeling amazing.
1: Yes, and when this episode goes live, we'll have KetoCon behind us and a couple of days left to sign up, but I guarantee we're going to have a really high influx of participants from KetoCon wanting to jump in on the class. So as soon as you hear this, and if you're thinking about or, you know... um, Pause. Yes, (laughs) pause. (laughs) (laughs) Pause and rush on over to AllieMillerRD.com backslash ketosis hyphen class to sign up and grab the 12 week program. Cause it's definitely going to fill up and sell out this time around.
2: And it starts July 3rd. That's Wednesday y'all. So, get it. Let's do it. And that means that you will be rock and roll. So, you're going to go July, August, September, rock and roll into the fall, into the holiday season when your kiddos get back in school, all the things. You are going to be like an iron, steel, shield, iron, and steel. All these. <laughs> I don't know. You're going to just be resilient and amazing. So, let's do it together.
1: Yes. And kind of gets you out of that excuse of, oh, it's summertime and, you know, mm-hmm. poolside indulgence every single day, or the summer holidays really got me and the kids were off of school. It's a really good way to be proactive about prioritizing your own health goals and having the support of both Allie and myself, as well as our growing community. We've got what. 500 to 1,000 participants. Yeah. I don't yeah, even know how there. many um, in our Facebook group now of past um, groups that have gone through this. We allow them to stay on in our private Facebook group and encourage new participants and help us to field and answer. Like
2: a buddy questions. system. Yeah. yeah. The best. Mentoring, yep. you know, all the yep. things. Yep.
1: So <laughs> go on over, sign up, and we'll see you there. Awesome. Okay, so to kick things off today, I'm going to ask a seemingly obvious question, but maybe something that we kind of just take for granted. Um, So what is blood pressure and why do we actually care about it beyond just, you know, getting your blood pressure checked at your yearly physical?
2: Yes. So uh, blood pressure essentially measures the pressure of your circulating blood volume. And this is the pressure that that volume puts on our arteries. So the, the walls of the arteries interiorly. Think of it like a garden hose. You know, whenever we talk about cholesterol or heart disease, we like to think of these garden hoses uh, that can get oxidized, like in cold weather, and that can drive inflammatory process or under high pressure, like elevated blood pressure, we can get little tears in the uh, internal lining of the vessels, uh, the endothelial lining, and that can create distress. And that's why blood pressure matters um, as far as elevations. We'll talk about tons of side effects today, but blood pressure is measured. You may have heard these terms of systolic and diastolic Values. And these are the numbers that we hear as far as like 120 over 80 as that like upper level of norm, right? So the systolic pressure is the top number. And this is the blood force or the pressure while the heart is beating. And then the diastolic or bottom number is the blood pressure when at rest or between beats. So the thump lump or whatever. There's a, there's a supposed to be a correct. Layout of the sound of the heart. And the systolic is going to be the top, diastolic is the bottom.
1: Okay. And then.
2: Love, love, dub. Yes. love, dub. <laughs> that's love, that's love, Very They're scientific. scientific. <laughs> yes. That's it. Um,
1: somewhere yeah. I have a blood pressure cuff from when I was going through my master's training. We had to practice taking blood pressure on a sample patient, which was Byron. And, um, it's the only time I've ever actually had to do that because we don't do it in our practice, especially virtually. (laughs) Um, definitely not virtually. No, no. Um, but if you are told that you have high blood pressure or low blood pressure, what are kind of the, the criteria or the cutoff points? What are we looking at for those different, um, areas?
2: Sure. So as low as when we're talking about hypotension or low blood pressure, we're talking about the systolic number less than 90, the top number less than 90, and the diastolic value being less than 60. Okay. Uh, If we're talking about normal, again, we're 120 over 80 and anything in between dropping as low as that 90 over 60. Uh, pre-hypertension is going to be like 121, right? Or over 120 to 130 in that systolic and 80 to 89, just under 90, um, as that, uh, diastolic lower value. And then there's stages of hypertension or high blood pressure. So stage one is going to be 140 to 159 over 90 to 99. And stage two is 160 and above over 100 and above.
1: Okay, and then typically, you know, a client doesn't know just walking around that they have elevated blood pressure. It doesn't always exhibit like a lot of symptoms per se. You can't really feel it unless you're on maybe that low or high end of the spectrum. Uh, but what would be especially,
2: some- yeah, and prehypertension, I feel like maybe not. Yeah, and, no, and it just depends. But it's so interesting how people define. I, what I thought was really funny, you know, we're putting together show notes that low blood pressure is not diagnostic until we're less than 90 over 60, right? Right. And I know often when I'm getting my blood pressure done at like dentist or doctor's office, I'm I'm usually like 107 or 110 over like 75 or something like that, or 70, let's say. And I always get the nurse being like, Wow. So do you run low blood pressure? It's like low to compared unhealthy people. I exactly. guess. I not clinically is my answer. It's yeah. pretty funny. Yeah. So anyway. like,
1: unless you're fainting, it's not necessarily. Yes. <laughs>
2: um, I don't I, get dizzy.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, but me too. I always get like patted on the back. I'm like, okay, compared to your generally unhealthy population. I'm I'm glad that, you know, I look almost dead. Um, <laughs> <laughs> okay, but um, what would be some of the warning signs or symptoms that we might see um, on the high end of the spectrum? So, if we're elevated blood pressure, are we walking around with like, I'm picturing like a red face and like, you know, yeah. feeling like kind of puffed up all the time?
2: But You can see that. Sure. And, uh, you know, I think one of the big things that we see are, that is a, a kind of precursor symptom that people would seek out uh, medical care for would be like chronic headaches. Uh, so intracranial inflammation or tension in the brain because of the high pressure that can definitely occur. So we can see headaches. And then as a like onset to headaches or follow up with that, we can see confusion or cognitive shifts as well as vision changes all within that, you know, brain pressure essentially. Um, And then we can see nosebleeds. We can see irregular heartbeat. uh, We can definitely see chest pain as well as uh, like a tinnitus or buzzing in the ears um, and some other forms of noise in the ears. And then um, overall chronic fatigue. And I would also say anxiety um, or like a feeling of panic can be associated with elevated blood pressure. We definitely can experience that during flukes of stress driving the blood pressure up for certain.
1: Sure. Um, And then what about um, risk factors that are going to drive this high blood pressure? So who's most at risk and and what are kind of some of the common underlying factors of elevated blood pressure?
2: So there's lifestyle elements. There's also genetic and um, ethnic elements that would be pre risk factors or kind of create you to be predisposed for a risk of hypertension. Uh, Definitely stress, alcohol, and a processed diet are the trifecta of Almost everything, right? As far as chronic illness. Uh, But the processed diet, we'll unpack a little bit further as we go into the the show today. But uh, processed foods, um, you know, anything, of course, that is going to have like the types of chicken that injects sodium to maintain the water turgidity right away, that chicken breast is starting at 380 to 580 or 600 milligrams of sodium as just chicken as the ingredient, right? Um, And so when we're talking about like commodity, industrialized food production, and we're starting with even quote unquote raw product that's processed, it creates a beyond chemical shitstorm of distress for the system. So highly processed foods. uh, We definitely uh, would talk about emotional stress being a big driver, as I mentioned, and and we'll talk about the connection of the adrenals and blood pressure in today. Uh, Alcohol, uh, just as a toxin and a stressor to the liver can play a big role with filtration. And we know the liver passes on to the kidneys and the kidneys are one of the primary regulating glands of blood pressure, as we'll discuss deeper. Caffeine, uh, be that it works both as a diuretic and a stimulant, is going to raise blood pressure as does smoking for the reason that it's a toxin but also a stimulant with the nicotine. Elevated weight or obesity is a driver, especially that centralized obesity because that constricts the function and the flow of the heart with regulating the circulatory system inactivity, uh, low low motility and movement is going to drive elevated blood pressure levels. And then there's a whole gamut of medications, but one that we have been discussing more and more and more recently. Uh, birth control pills can be a driver and any form of synthetic estrogen for that fact. And especially when we're talking about then the risk factor added on top for stroke, of clotting factor of estrogen to take into account. So that's a little bit of like insult to injury with those types of medication interventions. And then uh, beyond toxicity in the diet and toxic emotions and alcohol, we do see heavy, heavy metal toxicity playing a role because a lot of the components of vasodilation or relaxation in the vessels has a interaction with magnesium and calcium. And so if there's other divalent compounds like lead, um, arsenic, other types of um, heavy metals that can bind to receptors for minerals, that can definitely drive distress to blood pressure as well.
1: Okay. So a lot of potentially compounding variables there. And then, you know, when we're talking about What high blood pressure puts us at risk for, you know, I often think that we're dealing with typically, you know, metabolic syndrome type of traits, obesity, that will put us at risk for other things. But what does high blood pressure specifically put us at risk for?
2: So, I mean, most directly we're looking at damage to the arteries or arterial damage. So again, it's like if that garden hose is put under high pressure, you're going to get tears in the internal lining of that hose, right? And that's going to create distress to the function of the flow of the hose itself, the regularity, you can think that it's going to kind of kink and make different functionality where it has larger space versus more narrow. Um, So arterial damage. um, And of course, inflammatory process that follows from that arterial damage uh, because then the system tries to drive in repair. And again, it's like we've talked about in prior episodes, cholesterol being the firefighter at the scene of the fire, right? It's never the, Uh, driving cause of heart disease, but it does play a role in plaque formation in response to inflammatory injury. So that would be a, a big component, the damage itself and then heart disease. So whether we're talking heart attack or heart failure, aneurysm, um, any other forms of blood clots, uh, stroke, uh, blocked or ruptured blood vessels, and then we can see uh, kidney damage over time, uh, even till renal disease and failure. And then um, because the kidneys take that burden, that punch to the uh, the gland, the organ, and it's focus of filtration and then we can see even things like vision loss and circulatory function which would be driving over time loss of mobility dexterity hands and so forth and then there's that cognitive impact as i mentioned with the headaches there's also concentration memory cognition and, and mental health elements
1: Awesome. And I'm sure we'll dig into homocysteine in a little bit and that connection to blood pressure and the cognition and things like that too. Cause there's a lot of, you know, potential other underlying factors for sure. Um, what are some of the common interventions for hypertension? So some of the common drugs that we're using and prescribing, and of course, what are some of their, uh, not so great side effects?
2: Yeah, so we talked about diuretics actually I believe in that episode when we talked about uh, like drug nutrient interaction mm-hmm. because that's a very common one and you know that that classification of drugs themselves had to come out with potassium sparing diuretics <laughs> because of that like oh I, everyone's getting hypokalemic and this is causing some big problems, because potassium is important to the way that the the cardiovascular system functions. Uh Um, So so that itself is a shout out of the drug industry realizing a side effect of the drug, right? So a diuretic essentially increases urination. um, And so over time, it's um, diluting the concentration of sodium and fluids and, and concentration of electrolytes. So we also are set up for low, uh, mineralization. So beyond potassium, we can see, uh, low magnesium. Um, we can also see things like low B vitamin status and a whole gamut of nutrients because you're essentially pulling nutrients out of the system as a, as a form of trying to regulate the blood pressure and dilute out the blood to have less solutes. And, you know, solutes can contain nutrients that are necessary for the body. So that's kind of a big deal. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So that's like LASIX and um, hydrochlorothiazide and those types of drugs. And then, you know, the other drugs of function are either ACE inhibitors or uh, angiotensin. Uh, angiotensin 2 blockers, um, like Losartan, which is a little bit newer. The ACE inhibitors were in the picture first. That's like Lotensin, Acupril. Angiotensin-converting enzyme inhibitor is what an ACE inhibitor is. So that ACE is angiotensin-converting enzyme. And uh, basically... They work with the prevention of, as an inhibitor, right? It's preventing the conversion of angiotensin 1 to angiotensin 2, and then an angiotensin 2 blocker just goes right into that mediary step, right? And what this does is it disrupts the renin and angiotensin aldosterone system, or the RAAS. And what this does then is results in relative vasodilation because angiotensin 2 is a potent vasoconstrictor. So it's interfering with the feedback mechanism of regulating constriction of the vessel so that it stays dilated, essentially.
1: Okay. Got it. And kind of the moral of the story here is that either way, regardless of class of drug, we're overriding the body's natural (laughs) kind of tendencies and um, pathophysiology, and there's going to be some kind of downstream effect that's unfavorable.
2: Right. So, I mean, the ACE inhibitors and the angiotensin II uh, blockers can cause anything from dry cough to chronic fatigue uh, because of the impact essentially also with that aldosterone connection on the adrenal gland, right? Uh, We can get dizziness and then uh, hyperkalemia or excessive potassium, which is also not a good thing.
1: Okay um and I'm sure we'll dig into you know other solutions that we can go to prior to these drugs that will actually address the root cause, because clearly none of this is addressing root cause. Um, but right,
2: it's a bandaid yeah. for sure, yeah. bandaid. And you know, um, it's important to note that, of course, of course, blood pressure is of concern, and so we want to be proactive on regulating it and monitoring it. I think it's a very good vital uh, sign to check in on as far as how your body is resilient to stress where your nutrient status and electrolyte status is going to all speak to the downstream impact of your blood pressure.
1: Awesome. Okay. Um, before we go on, let's give a quick shout out to low blood pressure folks, because some of us, tend to
0: to,
1: <laughs> we tend to run. Um, I know I always tend to run on the the lower end of normal. And you said you do too. And we often get this like pat on the back, um, but is low bro- blood pressure as much of a concern?
2: It's just because we're so zen, Becky. Yeah,
1: that must be <laughs>
2: because we're so, so chill. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) um, So yeah, low blood pressure can, it's not as concerning in the sense of pathophysiology of driving chronic illness, to be fair, right? Like you're not injuring your arteries with low blood pressure. Would you agree? Like in that sense? Yep. Yep. However, There's still going to be some unpleasant side effects, and it can definitely cause a lot of an impact on the kind of regulatory function of the body or the HPA axis, of course. And the connection really goes full steam into the adrenals likely underperforming. But low blood pressure can drive uh, dizziness, lightheadedness. Uh, It basically will influence almost some people get tunnel vision or like a short term blackout um, because the brain essentially is deprived of blood supply. So that's not a good thing. Uh, And the drops in blood pressure can definitely occur more dynamically when someone is like sitting up from lying down you know it's a common impact of of, or we see like the church syndrome right of like changing positions like kneeling to standing or standing and locking your knees all these things are going to inhibit blood flow and uh, when we make a dynamic postural change or shift of uh, body posture uh, that's dynamic as far as the body having to recalibrate there can be those dips in blood pressure.
1: Okay, and then what about common symptoms or things we're going to see with low blood pressure?
2: So there's that dizziness, of course, lightheadedness, fainting, like I said, can be seen, dehydration or unusual thirst, which we'll talk about the connection there in a moment, Uh, lack of concentration. So you can see cognitive decline and uh, definitely an impact as far as like memory and brain function with both high and low blood pressure. So that can make it a little confusing as as well as blurred vision. Um, because again, it's either too much pressure causing inflammatory function or not getting blood flow to the brain, right? So either is not, the brain doesn't like either of those things. Nope. Uh, we can see nausea. We can see uh, colder circulation, like cold, clammy, pale skin, uh, pale gums, um, which we typically see also with anemia, because you're just not getting the blood flow to the tissues. We can see shallow breathing again, also can see that with anemia. Again, you're not getting the oxygenation uh, with the low iron status. You're not carrying oxygen in the heme. Um, fatigue and depression. So all these things can be seen and generally kind of like a flat affect. And um, we typically are going to see this associated with individuals that also have adrenal fatigue.
1: Yes, that's usually the biggest connection that I think of and probably why I have low blood pressure. Um, But (laughs) what are some other um, causes of low blood pressure?
2: So if an individual, well, blood, a big one is going to be pregnancy, right? There's a dynamic Mm -hmm. shift of your blood volume and circulatory function. So that's one. Uh, Decreases in blood volume would be another uh, driver. Um, So if there is blood loss, uh, that's going to play a big role. And then um, prolonged bed rest. uh, There's medications that can play a big role, Of, of course, Uh, diuretics, um, any hypertensive drug in general can drive you too low. And then even like beta blockers, calcium channel uh, drugs, those can impact blood pressure, of course, as well and and drive blood pressure to be too low. Uh, Antidepressants and uh, drugs that work as vasodilators for erectile dysfunction can also drive low blood pressure. Um, And then there are certain medications and, uh, excuse me, drugs, uh, street drugs and alcohol uh, can also drive low blood pressure. Um, So that's kind of the world of chemical influence. And then when people uh, have an allergic reaction, especially if it goes to the level of anaphylaxis, this is going to drive low blood pressure to a pretty extreme level. Uh, When we're dealing with severe infection or sepsis, Um, And then a connection of the endocrine system or hormonal regulating system in general uh, could be attributed to low blood pressure. Uh, And then there's nutrient deficiency. So as I mentioned, anemia being the first one, and then the other nutrients that make red blood cells or have an impact on, you know, the macrocytic anemia, we think of microcytic anemia being iron deficiency, but macrocytic anemia, we think of B12 and folate. Uh, So those B vitamins would also be nutritional drivers of low blood pressure based on low blood volume, not, not manufacturing enough of those red blood cells.
1: Okay. Got it. So let's dig in um, a little bit to the influence of the HPA access, because, you know, we're always going to go there, Um, connecting the dots between adrenal function, whether it's adrenal fatigue or excessive cortisol output, and kind of how that all manifests in the world of blood pressure.
2: So it's the connection that the adrenal glands make in the cortex. So there's, again, the medulla and the adrenal cortex, right? The medulla is where we make our neurotransmitters. The cortex is where we make the steroid hormones. And in the adrenal cortex, we make cortisol. We make DHEA, both of which we've talked about a lot. (laughs) And we make aldosterone, which we've talked about a decent amount, but not that much. So aldosterone affects the body's ability to regulate blood pressure as it sends signals to organs like the kidney and the colon. Um, And this is where it will drive the increase of the amount of sodium that the body sends to the bloodstream um, or the amount of potassium that's released in the urine. So it's going to give signaling of release or um, maintenance or resorption. So it basically causes the bloodstream to reabsorb water with the sodium to increase blood volume when the blood pressure is low. Um, and this all works as again, the feedback mechanism within the kidneys and the colon. And we know that the, one of the primary jobs of the colon is to regulate electrolyte status and also the system's fluid. And we often don't talk about that enough. I think we think of you know the kidneys as the filter because if the kidneys filter blood into urine for people that aren't aware of that, right? So their primary filtration system there. But the colon has a really significant role in the electrolyte stability and hydration status of the body as well. And that's where there's that, that feedback mechanism. So the hormone basically helps to regulate the blood's pH and electrolyte levels, as well as sodium uh, retention and potassium release.
1: Okay. Got it. Um, And then beyond that, I know that cortisol production itself can deplete certain nutrients like magnesium that plays a role in blood pressure regulation as well.
2: Right. Magnesium being the ultimate chill pill, right, is going to help us to lower blood pressure or relax the tension in the vessels. Um, And then uh, potassium can be depleted as well. And then, uh, aldosterone also has impact beyond the Im- influence. So, if you'd assume that aldosterone regulation would be off if the body is focusing on cortisol as a higher priority from, again, adrenal insufficiency or adrenal excess stimulation, cortisol is going to be the star of the show. Then, generally speaking, DHEA and aldosterone, unfortunately, for short acting, focus may be, uh, you know, sung to or or called on from the adrenal gland, but often it gets kind of the back seat. And that's where we can see Uh, the reflection of blood pressure irregularities and aldosterone also has an influence directly on hormones and it's the hormones that the kidneys produce renin and angiotensin and that's what creates that RAS system that I was talking about uh, prior with drug interaction the renin angiotensin aldosterone system and this system is going to be activated when the body experiences a decrease in blood flow to the kidneys so if there's a drop in blood pressure or the kidneys don't get the blood to filter um, or there's a stab wound, I don't know, hemorrhage of sorts, right? Where the blood volume goes down dynamically. Renin is going to uh, drive that response with also producing angiotensin. And this is going to cause the release of aldosterone. And there's this, this feedback mechanism between those three.
1: Got it. So it's all part of this kind of protective mechanism System And um, one of the common connections that I see in clients that are dealing with, especially adrenal fatigue, is either excessive thirst or salt cravings.
2: Yes. Yes, absolutely. And we're always telling people to honor that. Uh, And I I think we'll we'll shed some light further on how we don't have to fear sodium, which I'm hoping for listeners is going to be a big aha moment. But before we go any further, let's have a word from today's sponsor. So sponsoring episode 143 are our friends, Further Food.
1: Yes, we absolutely love Further Food and all of their products. They are the highest quality food as medicine supplements. Their collagen is grass-fed, pasture-raised, and for the cod option that they have is wild-caught, all non-GMO, hormone and antibiotic-free and testant for potency and purity. The Further Food community is made up of functional medicine practitioners, nutritionists, and other kind of health heroes out there um, who share their expertise to inspire product formulations that actually work. And Allie and I both use their collagen, gelatin, turmeric tonic, and mindful matcha on a pretty darn near regular basis. I think I'm using one of those products on a daily basis, if not more.
2: Totally. Yes. And so if you haven't started playing with gelatin yet in your kitchen, now is totally the time. So collagen is actually a component of gelatin for those of you that don't know. Gelatin is going to be a little bit less flexible in the kitchen in the sense that it gelatinizes or it's going to gel when cold. Uh, But that can make a lot of fun things like the gummies I did in Stella's Dino Cake or the cold brew gummies that Becky recently blogged, which I still haven't made but look amazing, or are like famous cacao, coconut milk, peanut butter, uh, gelatin as well, uh, which is done with just a scoop of further food gelatin, a can of full-fat coconut milk, uh, a couple tablespoons of peanut butter or almond butter, and uh, about a third cup of cacao powder. Blend that up, put that in ramekins, set it in the fridge, and it's the most delightful, naturally nourished, not sweetened, Treat um, and it's going to support your gut integrity. So, gelatin and collagen help to line the gut, um, which is going to reduce food sensitivity. They also are going to help with connective tissue, so hair, skin, nails. I really started converting to collagen on a daily basis during my third trimester and then postpartum and noticed that it was very supportive of hair loss and saw lots of fun little baby hairs coming in (laughs) through the nursing process, which was a welcomed treat from the stress of Caring a child. (laughs)
1: Yes. (laughs) And we are actually having an exciting episode coming up in a couple all about collagen and the science behind it. Um, And we're going to be having Ashley from Further Food on the podcast to talk about their product a little bit more. So more to come on that. And her
2: story. Yeah. Her health story. yeah.
1: So each of the founders, um, Further Food actually has their own health story and struggle with chronic illness, which I think just makes the work that they do all the more important and all the more sincere that it's coming from a place of looking to heal their own bodies and to spread that with others.
2: Absolutely. And collagen is something that you can have a lot more versatility with in the kitchen. You can put it in uh, keto muffins, pancakes, uh, any form of shaker smoothie. Both collagen and gelatin are great for children and adults alike. And then, like we said, they have some superfood tonics like the uh, turmeric tonic and the mindful matcha that we both use to reduce inflammation, boost antioxidant capacity, aid with uh, brain function and focus all good things. So go on over to furtherfood.com and put in the code AllieMillerRD at checkout. You will get 10% off your order and you'll also show them that you heard about them from us. So you always vote with your dollar and we appreciate you sharing with people that you heard about them from us. So go on over to furtherfood.com and use the code AllieMillerRD.
1: Awesome. So what about... Salt. So we kind of teased this one a little bit. yeah. <laughs> um, and I definitely can speak to um, getting the side eye from like family and friends when I'm literally licking salt out of my hand sometimes just because I feel like I need it. and if there were a human equivalent of like a salt lick, I guess there is, um, <laughs> I would be using one. Uh, but what's the what's the connection here? There's often this um, misconception that you know, high salt, causes high blood pressure, and we need to eliminate salt if we're diagnosed with hypertension. And most of the time, that's just not true. I mean, I remember in my dietetic internship, like having to educate on low sodium diets and just like rolling my eyes like crazy or (laughs) closing the door and, you know, speaking a little bit more truth.
2: (laughs) Well, and I think it's fair to first unpack the difference of sodium and salt, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, So maybe we start there. You know, so it's when we're talking about milligrams of sodium in a processed food, we're talking about often things like uh, MSG, like monosodium glutamate, right? We're talking about processed additives and other chemical compounds that contain sodium, or we're talking about chemically created um, NACL, right? So sodium chloride. Uh, This is very different from real salt. So, real salt is going to have hundreds of trace minerals. uh, And this is salt that's derived from the sea. So, this is the big trend we've seen in the last decade of sea salt, right? Or Himalayan pink salt. And teaspoon for teaspoon, there will be a similar sodium content of table salt and sea salt. However, you're also going to get trace minerals that aid in electrolyte stability, um, and you're going to get uh, compounds that are going to support the function of the body, and that in itself is going to have less of a blunt impact of the sodium on your system. And my favorite salt that I've been really obsessed with for the past couple years um, actually, I learned about them when I was out in Washington, um, is called Redmond Real Salt. And uh, what's really cool about Redmond Real Salt is they're out of Utah, and they mine their salt out of caves. So it's an ancient sea salt that has been deposited in the mountains. <laughs> and so we're not worried about uh, you know plastics in our seawater now. We're, we've heard a lot about salts and sea salts and just salt in general, having like plastic byproducts in it as anti-caking agents. We're also not worried about though, like the toxicity and contaminants in our up-to-date current oceans when we're extracting sea salt. So really unique about Redmond salt is that it's ancient salt that's basically been held in these caves and is able to be mined. And so super pure, super mineral rich And um, they have a really great uh, following in the paleo and keto community. Uh, You should check them out at realsalt.com and also use the code AllieMillerRD and you'll get 15% off. Uh, I like a couple different, I get bags and then I have salt jars in my house essentially or salt bowls. And so I like having like one course, one find, one super course. And then they have a bunch of really cool seasoning blends while you're on the site. So you should check it out. Redmond Real Salt. So that's real salt compared to sodium chloride. Just wanted to kind of clarify
1: that. Right. And and then huge distinction.
2: Yeah. And then other forms of sodium, like I'm thinking of like ramen noodle packs. Right. Um, So, yes. So, now, beyond that, uh, there has been a number of studies, and I think that the conception is, or, or the concept is that uh, the concept of sodium and blood pressure is again that aldosterone, remind you, made by the adrenals, plays a role with retaining sodium and releasing potassium. Right. So, obviously, if we just bring down salt, that's going to address the blood pressure. Was kind of the thought, uh, but there's been a number of studies that have refuted the heart uh, disease connection to salt. In fact, in 2011, there was a large meta-analysis that looked at 6,000-plus subjects. They found no strong evidence that cutting salt reduces the risk of stroke, heart attack, or death. It's essentially that the body just recalibrates to the level of sodium that's in your bloodstream, believe it or not. Um, So we've seen that... There is a relevant connection when there's an imbalance between salt-potassium ratio or electrolyte stability. And this does happen when we're eating foods that have chemically processed high amounts of sodium, again, but not real salt or sea salt that has the other minerals in its composition.
1: Okay. So vast difference. And I would say, if anything, in the real food and especially keto community, we see more of a risk of you know hypotension and hyponatremia, if anything. So going too low in salt when we switch from a more processed diet to a highly unprocessed diet. We actually need to add salt to our foods, and some people will really like drop their jaws at the one to two teaspoons that we generally recommend for anyone eating a real food or real food keto diet. Maybe even more than that. Um, yes, but yes, definitely something we see on a regular basis.
2: Again, unpacking that concept of if you're starting with an actual quality, uh, you know, from your farmer's market chicken breast that hasn't been injected with a sodium solution, right? You're starting at zero milligrams of sodium, whereas opposed to a fast food chicken breast, which, like I said, could have 600 plus milligrams without a sauce, without a seasoning, right? So, I mean, it's just a different game, and we've been told for so long to restrict because of the excess in the standard American diet and processed foods. When you go especially keto and real food keto at the same time, it's especially dynamic and concerning because we know the, the onset of, quote-unquote, keto flu, right, or that electrolyte recalibration that occurs in the first one to three days as your body is converting from the use of glucose as primary fuel to ketones, that that recalibration has a huge on your electrolyte stability. So if you're not supplementing with electrolytes, at minimum, you need to be doing two teaspoons of salt. And we definitely include that in our 12-week food as medicine protocol, as well as food sources of potassium, um, as well as food sources of magnesium. So you can use whole foods as medicine to maintain the electrolyte stability and ensure you're not getting those dips because that's often where people will quit keto early or same type of thing with intermittent fasting because of that hyponatremia that, that blood pressure dropped because of the low sodium.
1: Okay. Awesome. So really good distinction to make, I think. And, you know, Undemonizing or decriminalizing salt, I think, is amazing <laughs> and, and you know, <laughs> right? super liberating for those of us that know that it also you know adds so much flavor to our foods True. and it's so
2: important. Now we can make it recreational instead yeah. of just decriminalizing.
1: Yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah. <Exactly>. So, <laughs> I think salt
1: out of our person. is becoming yeah.
2: <laughs> it's becoming recreational. Actually, like right now there's a (laughs) fast challenge going on. It's a recreational thing. Um, And people are like doing, what is it? What is the hashtag? Like stop, drop and salt. Yeah. Stop, drop and salt. And so it's like Danny Vega and other friends in the, in the field that are like tagging each other that are doing this three day fast. And they're like challenging each other to keep salting throughout the day so that they can keep um, their system from going too wacky without nourishment. And that already lower level of solutes, in the blood, at least giving that sodium helps with that that regulation of the system.
1: Yep, and you have and I both probably have a Redmond little vial in our purses at any given time. Always, so we're, always, we're all on board. Um, okay, so dun dun dun, here comes the <laughs> the demon that's worse than salt. So um, we alluded to this at the beginning of today's episode, but I think in recent years we've both been really happy to see new information that states that sugar is actually far worse for blood pressure than salt.
2: Yes. So it's hyperglycemia or elevated blood sugar levels, uh, actually more shown in research over hypernatremia or high sodium levels in the blood. So high blood sugar and elevated insulin levels have a dynamic connection to high blood pressure. And it's basically thought that when the body produces too much insulin and leptin in a response to an excessive calorie diet that this causes the blood pressure to increase and the hyperinsulinemia is going to in part decrease the sodium and the water excretion in the kidneys so the kidneys filter less efficiently if you will Um, and then that directly is going to cause more constriction in the blood vessels uh, we also know that the hyperinsulinemia is going to drive more atherogenesis or uh, r- risk factor to the cardiovascular system based on the vessel health because there is an influence of the insulin levels altering our lipid metabolism unfavorably, driving more inflammatory and oxidative stress process. So again, this is a garden hose that's not only under high pressure, but when you add insulin as a driving factor of driving driving the blood pressure up, and you go on one of these drugs that is a diuretic or a drug that is an ACE inhibitor and it doesn't resolve the blood sugar dysregulation and the insulin, we're still getting the other contributing factors of the oxidative damage and inflammation damage to the vessels. So you're just putting one Band-Aid and then you need your metformin yep. for your <laughs> diabetes and then you need your Lipitor for your, your cholesterol and you know then you keep going in a gamut of, of whack-a-mole. So really important to distinguish that insulin specifically, which follows elevated blood sugar levels, is a dynamic driver to hypertension or high high blood pressure and often not discussed. Um, And insulin, unfortunately, is often not even tested. You know, we're now finally regularly running hemoglobin A1c, which is the three-month average of our blood sugar levels. But I'm really liking to see fasting insulin being added to panels because This even precedes prediabetes as far as a root health marker.
1: And then beyond that, insulin resistance can deplete certain critical nutrients, including magnesium, which plays a huge role in our vasodilation.
2: Right, right. So that's going to play a role with... Relaxing the vessels, and when we get depletion of this compound, we're not getting that balance or check balance to the elevation of the tension to start with. And then, you know, beyond that, there are unique processes of uh, the damage that occurs as an end product of elevated blood sugar levels. So, we're going to get these advanced glycation uh, end products or ages, right? And these are what we talked about a lot in our episode on cognitive decline and dementia as the mechanism of, you know, type three diabetes being a driver of of cognitive decline, Alzheimer's, dementia, you name it. And this is that kind of tarry plaque that builds up from elevated blood sugar levels. Well, these ages also can set up camp in our vascular function. Um, And this can play a role with how our blood vessel actually stiffens and um, can create more narrowing in the vessels, uh, less uh, blood flow, which of course is going to impact blood pressure as well.
1: Okay. And then what about high fructose corn syrup specifically and the impact it's been found to have on blood pressure? Because I think this is even scarier stuff.
2: Yeah. And especially, I think the world of sodas, because soda has a little bit of a trifecta. It has, you know, sodium benzonate as a chemical, right? A a processed chemical. Uh, It also has uh, caffeine, generally speaking, and high fructose corn syrup, which is all those three things, not good for blood pressure regulation. And fructose sugar specifically, elevates uric acid. Um, So especially for individuals like looking at gout, often, again, protein in the diet is demonized, but fructose should really be the the biggest direct hit. Uh, It elevates our uric acid, and this is going to drive up our uh, blood pressure directly by inhibiting the nitric oxide. And nitric oxide is a known compound that drives blood vessel uh, dilation, right? Uh, It's our vasodilator that some people take before workouts. We think of beets as being a good vasodilator. The dilator high in nitric oxide. And um, the suppression of the nitric oxide from the fructose sugar is going to, of course, then increase the blood pressure.
1: Okay. So moral of the story, less sugar, more salt. Um, what are yeah. other um, lifestyle shifts that we can make? I know stress reduction is a big one.
2: Absolutely. Because so stress is directly related to hypertension in the sense that stress is going to increase that fight or flight sympathetic nervous system response. And one of the most quick reactions of our our sympathetic nervous system is to increase the heart rate and drive vasoconstriction constriction or the, the, you know, the narrowing of our vessels to increase blood pressure and that's going to be itself driving hypertension and this is often responsive to epinephrine or adrenaline you know that's like you get that you can feel your heart beating out of its chest when you're under high stress or even if you're watching like a scary movie or something like that right and that's actually based on that sympathetic nervous system driving that increased heart rate and the constriction of the vessels so that's a dynamic kind of one plus one connection there So playing a proactive role on regulating your blood pressure could be working your parasympathetic balance. So we're looking at walking outside, we're looking at uh, physical activity in general, not only is going to mobilize glucose into your muscle, so that's going to help, right? Because that's going to help with the blood pressure regulation from the glucose and insulin effect we just discussed, but we also are going to get vasodilation and reduce heart rate from exercise. So that's a great thing in itself, physical activity. And then weight loss is going to play a big role, putting less pressure on the system overall, less circulatory distress. Smoking, as I mentioned prior, drinking soda, reducing processed foods, all of that lifestyle element. But the piece of the puzzle as far as stress reduction that I would highlight the loudest mantra, meditation, yoga, all of these things are good. Prayer, uh, just telling the self not to shit on yourself all the time, right? So re- releasing shame. But the four, seven, eight breath that I've talked about in a lot of episodes where we breathe in from the nose for four. Hold for seven and exhale with a whoosh, whoosh for eight. It actually works with the vagus nerve to influence a parasympathetic state. So we can actually see impact direct on blood pressure. And I've done it with a uh, nurse as a kind of fun experiment myself um, with both uh, with a blood pressure cuff, playing with pre and post that like white coat syndrome, if that's of concern for any of you listening. Four, seven, eight breath in your doctor's office will regulate your blood pressure
1: yeah totally and it is acceptable to ask for a a rerun if you like get there you know in a rush stuck in traffic they slap a cuff on you and you're through the roof you can ask for a minute or two to just like chill work on your breathing Maybe pop a Gabacom. I know we'll get to supplements in a in a moment, but that's a really yeah. good one for that kind of acute elevated blood pressure. Um, and ask to you know have your blood pressure taken again a couple minutes in.
2: Totally, I think that that's a great recommendation. And again, it's that adrenaline, epinephrine of like, oh, I, I, I you know, you're meeting a doctor, you feel like you're going to get judged to some sense, and you want to show up in a certain way, and you're probably frustrated and waiting in the waiting room and whatnot. So, I think it's a great thing to do is find your mellow um, when you go into that state.
1: Awesome. And then, you know, beyond that, physical activity would be big, and and specifically yoga, walking, as you mentioned, um, weight loss in general, and then, you know not smoking would be, I think, a big lifestyle. Yes.
2: The smoking, caffeine, processed foods, for sure. All that jazz. Okay.
1: Um, What about the um, role of nutrient deficiency and how that can play into elevated blood pressure?
2: So B vitamins, we talked about B vitamins can be deficient if you're on a diuretic, but B vitamins, and we'd also talked about, right, B vitamin status playing a role with red blood cell formation. So that in itself helping with blood pressure regulation for blood volume support, but B vitamins overall are going to play a role with energy metabolism. And also when levels are uh, insufficient we can see elevated homocysteine. And homocysteine is a marker of methylation in the body. So methylation, again, is the process of building or excreting. And homocysteine, when elevated, I like the value under eight. Um, the standard range is 12, uh, but I like it under eight to speak to optimized methylation in the body. And um, when homocysteine is elevated, this creates rigidity in the vessels. So if you have a rigid garden hose, right, you're not going to have as much turgidity or flexion or flexibility. So that sets you up for higher risk of not only elevated blood pressure, but uh, injury to the arteries and vessels. So that's one to really watch as a risk factor. And B vitamins, like our B complex would be a really great intervention there. I'm going to have all of the bioactive forms of the B vitamins and uh, have them in the uh, methyl form, uh, like methylcobalamin instead of sinocobalamin when looking at B12 magnesium would be a big one and not just any magnesium. We want to look at magnesium bisglycinate, which is going to play a role significantly differently. I swear every week there's someone new showing me their call mag container every week. I just, (laughs) if I could have a dollar. And so, um, you know, calm, which is the magnesium uh, canister that you can get at Target or uh, Whole Foods or wherever your grocery store is, uh, magnesium is a, a critical mineral that has 300 to 600, many, many enzyme processes in the body, plays a role with how we metabolize blood sugar, plays a role as an electrolyte plays a role with vasorelaxation, right? So it actually releases blood pressure tension in the body, which is the most direct effect. And it's also a smooth muscle relaxer. So if muscle is constricted, that's going to ultimately give uh, a physiological distress to the vessels. And then that in turn can drive vessel constriction. So magnesium bisglycinate can work neuromuscularly to help to support the blood vessels, help to also aid in those metabolic processes. And so we're looking at like leafy greens, nuts and seeds as great sources of magnesium. Uh, And then potassium, I'd mentioned as the other big one. Um, So we've, we've hit on, uh, you know, the main electrolytes, sodium, potassium, magnesium. Uh, Potassium is going to play a role with balancing out sodium and water in the body. And that in turn is going to help to lower blood pressure.
1: Okay. So nutrient deficiency can definitely be a big driver. Um, What about some supplemental support? Obviously the relax and regulate we just mentioned as well as the B complex, but what are your go to interventions when we're dealing with um, either elevated blood pressure? And let's not leave out those of us who are chronically low blood pressure either. <laughs>
2: Yes, this is true. So the Relax and Regulate is the one that has that magnesium bisglycinate in it. Um, and this is fantastic for both low or high. So I guess I've highlighted the influence of magnesium on you know being a vasorelaxer and helping to naturally lower blood pressure. But Relax and Regulate is also a fit for those of you that run low blood pressure because it helps with regulating that parasympathetic state and regulating the cortisol metabolism in the body, um, and then in turn, helping with cortisol regulation. So if you're running low cortisol, magnesium bisglycinate, and the relaxant regulate with also the inositol in there is going to help cellular signaling. Great for both ends of the spectrum. So that's a really great foundational supplement. Uh, I would also bring in just proactively an omega-3 fatty acid if we know we have issues with blood pressure uh, levels. Again, if we have low blood pressure... Getting more fat, especially an anti-inflammatory fat like the EPA, DHA extra is going to support hormone rebound in the body. And then if we're running high, we want to protect those vessels to keep them elasticized and lubricated so they're not at risk from the tension and tear internally from that high blood pressure hit. Um, So this is going to be great. And it also has a direct blood thinning effect, which will benefit cardiovascular health. So uh, omega-3s would be probably my next line of defense. For those of us that are running low blood pressure, my adrenal support would be the first recommendation for sure, like two to three a day of the adrenal support tablets. This is a glandular compound, which is going to aid in supporting the adrenals in the output of cortisol, DHEA, and aldosterone. So that's going to be a fantastic tool there going uh, to direct vasodilator, arginine, um, and I don't have any of the naturally nourished supplements that have arginine in it um, directly as like an isolate. Uh, but this is going to be an amino acid that's in protein containing foods. Uh, you know we think of uh, nuts and seeds are actually a great form as well of arginine. and uh, this promotes the nitric oxide production in the body, which is going to drive that vasodilation and that like enlargement of vessels. That's why a lot of people take that pre-workout, if you will. Uh, on a mood um, and neurotransmitter kind of connection and other hormone mechanism, GABA Calm would be a go-to for sure. Um, So GABA Calm will uh, aid in providing that influence on the parasympathetic state, releasing the epinephrine or that stress surge, that sympathetic state that drives the blood pressure. And then melatonin, another one to think of, uh, which is going to be hormonally influencing, it indirectly lowers blood pressure by aiding in relaxation and stress response and getting that deep sleep quality, which is going to upregulate that parasympathetic state to offset that sympathetic stress. And then the last one I would say, because I just feel like when we're talking cardiovascular function, you have to talk about CoQ10. Um, CoQ10, definitely deficiency. We can see trend with arrhythmias. Uh, We can see that CoQ10 status when optimized can play a big role with our uh, blood pressure levels, Um, and it's an antioxidant that supports our heart health especially if you're on a statin drug that's a bar none because that HMG-CoA reductase enzyme that the drug blocks is also going to inhibit the production of CoQ10. Okay,
1: awesome. And what would be good kind of go-to labs if we're dealing with either elevation or chronically low blood pressure? Where would you start with lab testing?
2: So I would probably start first off the bat with... I'm between a micronutrient panel, which would be great because that's going to look at your CoQ10, your uh, oleic acid, which is your overall fatty acid. It's going to look at your manganese, your magnesium, your calcium. So I'd probably start micronutrient tests truly to be most comprehensive and then use supplementation and food as medicine as a support. Now, if you're someone that has other symptoms more towards chronic fatigue or adrenal fatigue, you could run the NeuroHormone Complete or NeuroHormone Complete Plus and see the connection of your neurotransmitters, like maybe your super high epinephrine. And that chronic adrenaline output is what's driving the hypertension. And so we need to work with the Calm and Clear, with the L-theanine, right, and the nervines and adaptogens. And that is also going to have the B-complex, which is going to support the blood pressure. Um, so I would say probably the NeuroHormone Complete or micronutrient, but probably leading heavier micronutrient. And then the other ones that might be considered would be like the weight loss plus or cardiometabolic panel because those look at homocysteine, uh, lipoprotein particle size. So if you're looking more for comprehensive metabolic health, weight loss plus or uh, cardiometabolic panel would give us the blood sugar um, assessment, fasting insulin, and some of those other factors that we talked about.
1: Yeah, so for sure if you're dealing with other, you know, stubborn weight loss or um, other traits of metabolic syndrome or dyslipidemia or uh, imbalanced um, lipid panels, then probably the cardiometabolic or weight loss plus would be a good good starting place.
2: Definitely. And I would also say, so with the melatonin, um, our sleep support would be the formula I'd recommend there. And the cool thing about sleep support that makes it set apart from just a melatonin three to five milligram uh, capsule or tablet is that it has a synergistic blend of nervines and nervines calm the nervous system. So you should get more of a longevity versus the short-term effect of the melatonin. You should get more long-term impact of mellowing out your nervous system in a whole so you don't have that upregulation of expression of stress response, which drives the high blood pressure to begin with. And within that conversation, I also have to mention, I mentioned Calm and Clear, but adaptogen boost, right? Because the ginseng in there, um, ginseng is a great vasodilator, rhodiola, ginseng, and um, cordyceps in there. So great immune tonifying, stress responding, uh, also blood pressure regulating formula that also supports, especially if you're in the chronically low or high, the um, Ad- uh, adaptogen boost will be a great formula as well.
1: Okay. Awesome. I'll make sure to link all of the supplements that we've mentioned as potential interventions. Now let's bring in some food as medicine just to kind of round things out. So what are your favorite yes. go-to foods for blood pressure issues?
2: Yes. So our favorite snack we recommend in our food is medicine ketosis program is half an avocado with half of a teaspoon which is actually a good amount <laughs> of coarse salt and the juice of a lime and then i like to add like pepita seeds or microgreens as like a crunch in there and just eat it with a spoon um so avocado is a great potassium rich food uh when we're thinking of potassium and again its effect of balancing out electrolytes and helping to lower blood pressure we often think of banana but uh if we're doing a ketogenic diet and we want to keep that lower or You know, we can use it, of course, in like muffins and such in small amounts, but um, avocados are fantastic. Coconut water is fantastic, as is spinach is another great potassium-rich food and leafy greens in general. And then if you're just doing a low glycemic diet or carb cycling, melons and bananas are great choices as well.
1: Awesome. And then omega-3s we mentioned as a supplement, but looking toward wild caught fish as a source, especially smaller fish, sardines and things of that nature, as well as grass fed beef for omegas
2: flax seed, chia seed, and what's cool with the omega-3 rich foods like sardines, you could also do salmon roe, Uh, then you're going to get a lot of CoQ10 too. So doing fish eggs um, or fish with the organ intact uh, is a great two-for-one there.
1: Yes, we just had some salmon roe tonight on top. Um, my husband was in charge of making dinner, so it was salmon with salmon roe on top of it. I'm like, oh, Overkill, but and then like did like something with seaweed and feta cheese. I'm like, this doesn't go at all. The feta.
2: I am grateful, <laughs> regardless. Oh, Byron, <laughs>
1: salmon
2: three ways. Yep, yep. At least you didn't like grind some of the salmon into the feta. <laughs> I'm
1: like. Really, it was uh, weird. But yeah, it was it was thinner and it was nutrient dense. If nothing else, Yep, totally <laughs> nutrient dense.
2: Yeah, and we were dipping with champagne uh, the row, the salmon roe eggs with uh, chicharones uh, pork rinds. Always a good snack. Um, so tea, tea would be a fun one to discuss as far as blood pressure regulation. Uh, white tea actually um, has been shown in a lot of studies to thin the blood and improve the arterial function. Um, so drinking white tea can be a great way to lower blood pressure. As can hibiscus tea. Hibiscus tea is a great blood pressure lowering uh, tea as well. Uh, dark chocolate um, is a vasodilator and enhances that nitric oxide expression in improves the blood flow. So any cacao that's 80% or greater or using cacao nibs or cacao uh, powder. uh, So that collagen uh, or excuse me, the gelatin, uh, nut butter, coconut milk, cacao pudding that I mentioned, we'll make sure to link that uh, that I talked about in the further food ad. uh, That's going to be a great choice as well. Garlic is a great one, not only antiviral and immune-supporting, but also a vasodilator seen to reduce blood pressure in patients with elevated uh, blood pressure. Uh, arginine-rich foods, as I mentioned, uh, nuts, seeds, so sesame seeds, sunflower seeds, spinach, as well as an overlap from potassium, uh, turkey, seaweed, and then uh, crab and lobster also fantastic as far as arginine. And then another A nutrient, anthocyanins. These are the dark pigment in berries, as well as uh, seen in uh, like that purple, black, red uh, pigment that we see in blackberries, blueberries, uh, grapes. Uh, we also see raspberries, goji berry, pomegranate, cranberry, eggplant and um, these foods aid in reducing vascular inflammation and also have been shown as antioxidants to contain blood pressure-lowering benefits.
1: Awesome. So I think somewhere out there, there is a blog post that we have from back in the day that I'll make sure is updated on foodist medicine support for blood pressure regulation. I also have a good one on coping with keto flu that I think we talked about the difference um, between real salt and um, like iodized table salts that I will link in our show notes as well. Hopefully we have given you guys a lot of good information as usual. It was kind of jam packed and a little bit nerdy at times, Um, but a lot of good information of where to start in terms of food as medicine, supplements to consider, lab interventions, and um, really drilled home the sugar connection. Um, So if you loved today's episode, head on over to iTunes and leave us a five-star review along with a couple of sentences of why you love the Naturally Nourished podcast.
2: And we'd love if you would snag a spot in the 12-week virtual Food is Medicine Ketosis class. And when you do it, snap a picture of your registration and share that on Instagram, Facebook. Share the link Allymillerrd.com backslash ketosis hyphen class with your friends and family members because... Strength in numbers matters, and we know that you can have better accountability when you have friends and family on your journey, but either way, we have a community here to support you. So looking forward to seeing you guys in a couple days in the first class.
0: Thank you for listening to the Naturally Nourished podcast. Visit our blog at AllieMillerRD.com for recipes, wellness tips, and food as medicine meal plans.